0: Plucky Ladies podcast, exploring female curiosity, perseverance, and feats of excellence, hosted by Jess Kapp. Today
1: on Plucky Ladies, I speak with Dr. Wendy Moore, Associate Professor of Entomology at the University of Arizona, an insect systematics curator of the Arizona Insect Collection. A woman who loves bugs, I can't wait to dig into her story and learn how she came to center her life around insects. Hi Wendy. Hi Jess. Thank nice you to meet so you. much. Nice to meet you too. Thank you so much for agreeing to come and chat with me. Sure thing. Um, I noticed when I was reading about you, we have a couple of things in common. One is that you, so you did your bachelor's degree at Vanderbilt. I did, and I did my master's degree there. Oh, fabulous! So we both have a
0: little Nashville connection. Mm-hmm. Did you like living in Nashville? I liked it. Yeah. yeah. I actually, I felt like I was in a little bit of a bubble yeah. at Vanderbilt. Yeah. But, um, Yeah, I would get out of that bubble sometimes, and I did enjoy the city as well. Yeah, it's a really wonderful city.
1: And the other thing that struck me about you is that one of the things you talk about um, being really interested in with your work is um, how tectonic events might influence biodiversity. Oh, right. And I'm a geologist, so I'm really interested in tectonics. So I hope as we go through this discussion today, we can talk about that a little bit. But before we get there and into all the cool work that you do, I wanted to go back a little bit and learn a bit about your roots and where you come from. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the things I'm always fascinated about uh, with women in science in particular is how you came to science. So tell me a little bit about your childhood and where you grew up and your parents. Like, were you immersed in science from a young age?
0: I was immersed. You were? Absolutely, yes. <laughs> okay. I grew up with a, a father who's a biologist, a marine biologist. Okay. Um, and it's, he's he was always paying attention to the biological world and mm-hmm. pointing out things to me and my brother mm-hmm. and um, started fostering that attention to detail that I think a lot of scientists have Mm -hmm. and a curious mind. Right. And um, also my family would go on camping trips all the time. So we were immersed in nature and we, from a very early age, I found the amazing amount of peace Oh. And connect- connectivity that you have in those environments. You did, and so it was. I've always wanted to be a biologist, some form of biology, some form of biology. Although I must tell you, I love rocks. Yeah, I really love <laughs> rocks, and I could yeah. totally imagine being a geologist yeah if my dad was a geologist i'd probably be a geologist because he'd You're, be pointing out different things sure but he was mostly pointing out forms of life yeah which <laughs> so. Is, it's so interesting to me because a lot of kids actually go the opposite where they rebel against sort
1: of what their parents do and they think mm. oh i would never like my boys my, my husband and i are both geologists and my kids the last thing they want to do is go hiking and hear about rocks Oh, right. You know, so they'll say, "No, we don't want to do that." You know, um, we're more interested in this, that, and the other, which is fine and wonderful. Uh, but it's just interesting to me that you actually felt a connection to that from a young age.
0: I felt a, felt a, a, a personal connection to that, mm-hmm. and um, in fact, I did rebel a little bit. Yeah, my dad wasn't really excited about me going to biology. Oh. In the end, he wanted me to make a lot of money, oh. be a medical doctor, yeah. and I had to figure out for myself what I really wanted to do what was going to fulfill me and a lot of what fulfills me ironically are the things that I learned at an early age in large part because of him. Wow (laughs) that
1: is so interesting yes but you bring up a good point because I come across this a lot and it's one of the reasons that I wanted to do this podcast is because I often come across young people here at the university especially who will say to me they'll be in my geo class which is a gen ed and they'll say to me but I'm a this major or that major Mm -hmm. and when I ask them why a lot of what's driving them is this idea that I can get a good job and make a lot of money Mm -hmm. after I graduate and I'll say well do you really enjoy your classes do you enjoy the work you're doing and they often say no Mm -hmm. but my parents think it's really important or I think it's really important that I come out with a job that's going to you know make a lot of money and sometimes I wonder if that comes from that this generation of students has grown up through our economic depression here in the States. And so they've, they're very aware, mm-hmm. um, more so than I was when I was young, sort of very aware of what the stakes are if you can't take care of yourself financially.
0: Right. That We've, could be. That could be. I think that even without a depression, the, our tendency is to do what we think we should do. Yes. Um, maybe not for feelings inside of ourselves, but right. instead of what's being talk to us about outside of ourselves right (laughs) and so i think one of the best things that any young person can do is to hold on to their dreams and follow their passions and realize that if you work really hard and you really want something you're going to make it work that's right you're going to yeah. make it work. Where were you when you were growing up? Where did you grow up? Oh, well, I was born in Maryland, okay. and I grew up there for, like, the first six years of my life, and we moved around. Yeah. My dad was also in real estate, mm-hmm. so we lived on the beach in Calvert Cliffs, okay. Maryland, for nice. a while, and then we lived on a farm mm-hmm. for a while. Oh, wow. So all very fun, organic, tied-to-nature places. Yes. And then we moved to Charleston, South Carolina. Okay. And, um, and I grew Graduated from high school there, okay, um, and then went to Nashville. All right, um, and then went back to Charleston and got my master's degree in marine biology. Okay, and then after that, uh, took a, a gap year nice. <laughs> where I was working, and I decided exactly what I wanted to do, mm-hmm. and then and then I came here for my PhD actually. So you and I have a similar
1: geographic paths. I was northeast, you were more southeast, but making our way out west slowly over mm. time. As I grew up in upstate New York, uh, undergrad at Syracuse, then Nashville, and then out to Los Angeles, and yep. eventually landed here. So kind of this circuitous path, but eventually getting out to the west. Great. <laughs> and I find it really interesting that you are, um, you know, you live in the desert, but you're, really your passion started, when you talk about biology, one of the things I read about you is that you really started with the ocean.
0: Oh yes. Yeah. yeah. I grew up on the ocean. Right. And um, I always... Actually, I wanted to be a marine biologist um, and I got my master's degree in marine biology. Right. But what I really, really loved is I found my science, which is systematics. Okay. And, I, and that's basically um, determining, um, determining and describing what species are new. Oh. And then inferring how they're related to one another. Okay. And upon that pattern, laying questions that I'm really interested in. So um, questions of their natural history, their behavior, their distribution. Yeah. Speaking of plate tectonics. Yes. Um, And I realized that I could do that work Mm -hmm. on any group of organisms. Because the more you get to know a group of organisms, the more you're fascinated with them because it's just like they get more and more interesting. And so I shifted from marine biology to entomology. Right. The study of insects. The study of
1: insects. And I know when I watched um, Insecta, which is a short documentary on the website for the Department of Entomology, and I actually recommend it. Everybody should go watch it because it's really cool. Um, You talk in that documentary about the, the critters, for lack of a better word, that you studied in the ocean and how they were similar in some ways to insects.
0: They are. So, talk about that a little sure. bit because that's fascinating <laughs> as well. <laughs> so, uh, for my master's degree, I studied isopod crustaceans. Okay. So, these are the roly polies of the sea. Yes. And like a potato bug, roly poly like bug. Potato yeah. bug, exactly. Um, and uh, they are arthropods, just like insects are. Okay. So they're, it's a, it's, they're both in a phylum of animals mm-hmm. that have an exoskeleton right. and jointed appendages. Right. And they're the most diverse organisms on Earth. Really? And so, yeah. And the, the really cool thing about arthropods is that they wear, they're, they have an exoskeleton. Right. So they're skeletons on the outside of their body. Right. And they're, they're full of structures and uh, color, mm-hmm. but... Um, kind of wear wear their identity right there outside unlike like a nematode that might you might need the DNA or to do slices. Okay. So I'm a very visual person. Okay. And comparing um, different crustaceans once you get to know them is that's really similar. So you start
1: to pick up on the fine details that separate them like what small differences might be that you can actually see right and when you're looking at them so the 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 animals you're looking at from the ocean are they really small
0: they vary in size Uh, the ones I worked on were really small Mm -hmm. but there are some (laughs) isopods in the deep sea that are enormous the size of lobsters yeah right that might scare people (laughs) like a giant
1: potato bug crawling around in the ocean might freak people out (laughs) the ones that when you say small are you talking microscopic or you can see them with the naked eye
0: oh you can see them with the naked eye but um to study them you'd need a microscope so maybe two millimeters oh okay so like if you're swimming around in the ocean in the shallow water are you interacting with these
1: and you just don't know it or do they have very specific sort of um, places that they live in the ocean
0: oh that's interesting so this these small ones they're interstitial Okay, so which means that they're in the little spaces between pockets of coral rubble oh. or small little rocks. Okay. So the way that we would collect them is we would go diving and bring the coral rubble up and kind of throw that that up into the water column, oh, and wow. then take a plankton net and oh. draw and then um, yeah, run the pl- the, pr- the plankton net through the water and and then they would be in there. Oh wow! And th- and at the same time that would draw all the fish to us because they eat them because they eat them oh my goodness so So do they kind of use that coral
1: rubble for cover to not get eaten yeah oh my gosh it's fascinating to me to think about organisms that tiny that actually have strategies for survival like you Mm. tend to think of small things as being food like plankton, they just <laughs> float around in the ocean and whales just come and, they and you know, take them in. And what are the plankton actually doing to protect themselves? Nothing. Right. But these guys yeah. actually have a strategy for survival.
0: Oh, yeah. Right. And a lot of sometimes the strategies aren't that obvious. So even some things that are floating around, they may have chemical defenses. Really? Mm-hmm. So there, there's, I, I think, yeah, all organisms have their own way of surviving. Right. Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, I guess, yeah, I never thought about that. Like, maybe plankton actually do something that helps them survive. I don't I'm know sure what it do. is. <laughs> Are you sure they do? Maybe they do. Maybe they don't. Um, so I wanted to get a little bit, if you're okay with that, into your personal story. Because you talk sure. about you switched from marine biology to entomology. And mm-hmm. some of that is, you know, there is this similarity in looking at these different uh Organisms and being able to sort of categorize them and find the differences, which is really fascinating. But you also had a personal reason that did that for you. And I think this would be particularly interesting to young women listening because this is something that I think a lot of us often face Mm. in our lives as we get older and we have relationships and we have to make decisions about – you know, career versus personal, and how do we do both?
0: I see. Yes. So, so would you, you talk? Watched to, Insecta.
1: I watched Insecta, <laughs> so I have a little sneak peek into yes. your history. So, yes, um, it's, I'm
0: exposed. You're exposed a little bit. <laughs> okay. um, yeah. So, I would yeah. love for you
1: to share a little bit about that part of sure. your story and the positives about it. Sort of what oh. came out of it that were that were good. Um, if there are, po- I'm sure there are positives.
0: There are all positives. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. So the story is is that when I was working on my master's degree. Mm-hmm. Um, I I fell in love with um, the science yeah. at the same time that I fell in love with my husband. Yes, who my, who's now my husband. Right but at the time, he was my advisor. Right, and um, he's fairly famous in marine biology. Okay, and I really didn't decided that it's more important to stay with this relationship mm-hmm. that is so unique. And yeah. it's like so rare. Yeah. Um, <laughs> than it was to either pursue marine biology or um be in the relationship and pursue marine biology, which was a conflict for me. Okay. Because he he is so famous. I was afraid of being in his shadow. Yeah. Or being in his limelight. I wanted right. to make my own way. Right. And so um, when I thought about that, and I had seen other examples of relationships, like work relationships, mm-hmm. and the kind of power struggle yes. that uh, sometimes occurs, mm-hmm. and I'm a pretty competitive person. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I mean, for myself, I'm, I, I push myself, yes. but I also, I enjoy taking credit for what I do sure. and also giving credit to others. Sure. And I just wanted to have that distance and not complicate my personal life with that kind of professional life. Right. So. I can sympathize with that a little bit. Um,
1: my husband's also a geologist. We were in graduate school together, so there wasn't really a power dynamic mm-hmm. there. But when we did decide to get married and then he got a job before I did, I wasn't finished yet and he was tenure track. I really had to think about, um, you know, I want to be a mother. That was very important to me Mm -hmm. um, in addition to being a scientist and having a career. And I had to be very realistic about what can I do while he's on this journey of trying to get tenure um, that's going to allow us to do both and allow me to be the type of mom I want to be, which is to be present with my children as Mm -hmm. much as I can while also fostering a career and it was part not all of but part of the reason that i did decide to not go tenure track because i felt like i would not feel as guilty about spending more time at home not putting in 12 to 15 hour days in the office and i knew that's what he was going to be doing yeah um and sometimes you know i think it might come off as well the woman's always sacrificing you know how come the guys don't have to do it but it was really a conscious decision that i thought very carefully about and made and knew that it was going to be good for my mental health, for our relationship, for my kids, mm-hmm. and for my career. Ultimately,
0: mm-hmm.
1: didn't did you feel that way that you know this was not something that was forced upon you, but you were making a very conscious decision?
0: Oh yes, yeah. I made a very conscious decision. And in fact, um, my husband sacrificed a lot for yeah. me. Yeah, he he quit his tenured position. He followed me out here to yeah. Arizona for my PhD with nothing. Right, and. Uh, started over again and right. reinvented himself. Right. And so I've, I've seen that in other relationships, mm-hmm, too. Mm-hmm. I think that in this day and age, men make sacrifices as well. Yeah. And. Um, as they should. As they should. As, yes. we bo- <laughs> as we all
1: have to do if we care about our relationships. Exactly. That's it's right. all a matter of priority. Yeah. When I got the job here at U of A, um, we, my husband and I had always joked about um, there was a guy who had my position before I took it. And um, he was amazing. And we always joked about, God, that would be the perfect job for you. You know, someday when he retires, maybe, you know, I taught mm-hmm. high school for a while. I had different things going on. And then he retired and the job came up. And we were like, can this really happen? You know, you should go for it. Um, and I got the job. And there were some people in my department who were convinced that I was sort of in my husband's limelight. Well, they want to keep him happy. So they're offering her the job. Yeah. And maybe she's not the best person. Um when I went through the rigorous you know, rigmarole that everyone else who interviewed for the job went through with the three-hour interview and a teaching demo and all of these things you have to do, um, and the committee thought that I was the most qualified, and I'm very grateful because I love my job. Mm-hmm. Um, but there, when you talked about you didn't want to be in his limelight in addition to being in his shadow – there is this real fear.
0: There is when
1: you have a partner who's succeeding at something and you're in the same field that people are just going to assume that you're riding the coattails. Exactly, and it's yep. it's it's crazy mm-hmm. on some level, but it's it's still there. Yep. And, and I th- I yeah. think
0: it's a natural fear because it is still there. It is still there, and so um, it, it's good to be conscious of that. Yeah, and just to figure out a path. Yeah, that will allow you to. You know, navigate yeah. that adversity, <laughs> yeah whether or not you accept it. Yeah, and uh, knowing yourself that right. you won that position, right, fair and square, right. And also, there are probably many people in your life that see you as someone who won who won that position fair and square as well. I right. mean, of course, there's some people who might won't. see the other, right. But that's like it's a, it's the case for everything sure and life right we need to be confident
1: when we do get a position or we get into graduate school or we get that we belong there
0: exactly um,
1: which doesn't mean that you don't have to work hard Mm -hmm. but you're there for a reason right someone saw something in you and they wanted to give you that chance. That's right. And I know as a grad student, I often felt that imposter syndrome. What am I oh, doing here?
0: Yeah.
1: Did you experience that?
0: I haven't actually, but really? a lot of my friends have. A really? A lot of the imposter syndrome. I haven't had that one. Well, you're I've lucky. I've had plenty of other things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I feel really, I am fortunate. I feel incredibly fortunate. I feel like yeah. I have worked really hard, um, I. but I'm... I've I've had so much help along the way. Yeah. And I sometimes don't give myself enough credit sure. for my own success. Mm-hmm. Um but but I don't feel like an imposter, I guess. I think that's I, sort of common for women to not always give
1: ourselves the credit that we deserve. Yeah. I think it's more common for men to be like, "Yeah, look at me." Oh.
0: Yeah. Right? <laughs> I think, yeah, yeah, I just went to a fabulous talk by uh, Michelle Center okay. in the faculty talk series at the Insect Arizona Insect Festival, okay. and she was talking about that. She said, you know, she feels like it's sort of in our, maybe our DNA or in our upbringing where women need to be, like, 100% sure before they jump in. That's right. And men could be, like, 40% sure, <laughs> and they're, like, <laughs> across the starting line. That's you right. You know, it's like... Yeah, so it's 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 a difference in the way that, our, uh, that we're made up. <laughs> yeah, I think that's
1: true. I recently spoke with someone in HR here, and we were talking about, you know, when you as a woman go in to ask for a promotion or a raise, um, we tend to be very – we sort of think at the low end of the spectrum, like what can I really ask for that mm-hmm. I deserve and what is reasonable and what is not too pushy and not too much, whereas men will sort of think at the high end, like this is mm-hmm. what I'm worth and I'm going to ask for everything and then some. And if I don't get it all, at least I'm going to get some. Mm -hmm. Um, But we're a little bit more afraid sometimes. And again, this isn't all women, but I think it is very natural for us to be a little bit more tentative in what we're going to ask for. Mm -hmm.
0: I think that's true.
1: Yeah. Maybe we should not do that so much. (laughs) And have the confidence to say, this is what I think I'm worth. And what's the worst that can happen? Well, They say, no, you're not. (laughs) <laughs> right. You'll probably still get a raise of some sort. <laughs> Just maybe not everything you asked for. So I want to shift gears a little bit and talk sure. about bugs. Okay. Because, um, so full disclosure, I'm someone who's never been a big fan mm-hmm. of bugs. And I think uh, we were talking about this earlier that mm-hmm. it's sort of, you think it's sort of even in our genes to to be a little bit put off when we see a bug.
0: Yeah, I do. I mean, I I honestly did not grow up. I'm not the little girl who loved bugs you're not no I loved nature and I loved marine biology and I kind of got into it because the first um project research project I was working on was isopods and so I I, if it had been um starfish oh my gosh I'd love to work on echinoderms too you know and so it's it's not that's so much that drove me. And so I share that with you. I'm not like crazy about bugs. Okay. But I but now that I know them, yeah. now that I've worked on them for so long, yeah. I'm crazy about some of them. And yeah. I'm really really appreciative of the div- the immense diversity and the importance. Of them, so you're you're crazy about the science, and you're crazy about
1: the diversity that you see in the insect world. But you didn't get there because you fell in love with bugs.
0: I I did fall in love with bugs when I when I I think it was my second year of my PhD. Okay, that's when I fell in love.
1: And what were you working on for your PhD? Oh, I still work on them. Okay,
0: so I um I work on a group of beetles mm-hmm. that. Primarily, I worked on a group of bombardier beetles right. that live with ants. Okay, and I was thinking about what I wanted to do for my PhD, mm-hmm. and I had gone through the literature and I had, you know, looked at uh, um, different topics that I could explore, and I didn't ever see those insects, mm-hmm. and so um, I had the opportunity to go to the California Academy of Sciences, mm-hmm. and. Really look at all of the specimens in the collection there that okay. I had thought I might focus my research on, and I did that, and none of them caught my attention. Really, not a single one.
1: Now, when you talk about specimens, are you looking at they're they're dead, like yeah, bugs that are yeah. like mounted, and you mm-hmm. go and you get to look at their morphology and their bodies, and sort of think which one of these catches my
0: eye? Exactly. Okay. Which one? Which of these can I look at for the rest of for the rest my, <laughs> my PhD, life, maybe? At least. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And. Um, and so, uh, yeah, it's, it's a big natural history collection. Yeah. Like we have here mm-hmm. on the U of A campus. Yeah. Um, but even bigger. Okay. And worldwide in scope. And so after I had looked at these five possibilities, I just started at the beginning of the family, Carabity. Okay. And the group that I work on is, um, it's it's traditionally classified at the beginning of the Carabity. Okay. And so when I first just did my tour, I... Of general Carabids ground beetles, I pulled out a drawer of paw signs. Okay, and I, I they're pretty small, and so I put one of these beetles under the microscope, and I looked at it, and I, I. Didn't know what I was looking at. I yeah. was looking at something that looked like so outrageously different from a normal beetle really? that um, I couldn't even distinguish clearly where the head and the pronotum and like the major parts of the body were. Okay. I was like, "What is this?" And then I put another one under the scope, and it was as wonderfully yeah. bizarre in a completely different way. What? And I kept doing that over and over again and that was it for me I never looked back really and so the, the story is is that they live with ants okay. and uh, they're brought into the ant nest by the ants and once inside they eat the ant brood okay. and they <laughs> lay their eggs in the ant nest and the beetle larvae grow up grow up inside the ant nest and they're they're completely filled with chemicals uh-huh. substances and we're not sure exactly what the nature of those substances are yet but that they become very attractive to the ants, and they. So you think um, it's a
1: chemical attraction? Because I was just going to say, why would these ants do this? And then they come in and eat and
0: eat them. Right. I know. I think. I think that these parasites, these beetles, are parasites. I think that they're, they're smart because they're, they're in there eating ant brood yeah the eggs mm-hmm. but they only eat they don't like destroy the colony okay right so they're not so destructive right. it's a natural renewable resource yeah even ants in times of trouble will eat their own brood okay and so while they are um eating them uh it's a social organism it's a big social nest yeah. right and so it's not destroying that whole lineage do you think there's something symbiotic going on there? Like is there um, something the ants get out of this? I think that there probably is because I don't think that I don't think the ants would allow them to be in their net. They would evolve strategies to per, to recognize them probably. Right. Unless they're just really master predators. Hmm. It could be that there's just this arm race and they're flying under the radar. But I think that there's a possibility the ants are getting something back. And probably the key to that has to do with these chemicals. Yeah. Yeah. And I I
1: know when I – oh, go ahead. And
0: or symbionts. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Because I noticed also in in the documentary, you talk about there is a chemical they emit when you agitate them. Yes. Right? And so talk a little about that because you've experienced
0: this many times. yeah. 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 (laughs) So – bombardier beetles there's two lineages of bombardier beetles mm-hmm. and um, they produce benzoquinones for defense okay that they emit from their pygidium, the, okay. their butt end okay uh, <laughs> when they're disturbed um, at the boiling point of water what yeah so really hot so they're masters of chemistry Yeah. and um and yeah, it's, it's pretty spectacular. So there's two separate groups of bombardier beetles. I think in Insecta, I mostly talked about brachinus, which yeah. is here in Arizona. Okay. But these files, um are living in Africa and Madagascar. Sure. Yeah. I know. I remember in the
1: video, there was like slow motion camera work where they yeah. showed you touching the the back end of the beetle, and it kind of does this thing with its body, where it mm-hmm. changes the shape of its body, and then it emits this yeah. chemical.
0: It's so cool. So. Yeah. For brackenines, that that's the one that you're talking about now, yeah. they have a very flexible abdomen, yeah. and they, at the end of that abdomen, are the turrets, okay. or the um, little nozzles that where the defensive chemicals come out, yeah. and because their abdomen is so flexible, they can shoot the turret, the turrets can move in any direction, like a Gatling what? gun, and shoot straight at their predator. No way. Totally cool. Oh my gosh. Yeah. And then they b- it burns your fingers. Actually, at the insect festival, I was showing them I to can someone. I see you've got like marks on your thumb right now exactly. from being burned, <laughs> chemically Usually burned, you do. <laughs> and at the temperature, the boiling temperature of water. Yes, but in fact, I mean, um, it, it's not uh, it chemically burned. Right? Chemically burned. It's not. Is it is hot, but it's not like a burn, like like it would be if you put your finger on the oven or something like that. So here's a question that
1: comes to mind. Um,
0: is it hot in their body
1: all the time or do you no. think they superheat it quickly
0: <laughs> i know they do so you know they do yeah yeah that so so basically what they've done is um all of the members of this well all of the Adephaga, the whole suborder of beetles have pagidial defensive glands okay and bombardier beetles are two lineages within that suborder mm-hmm. and and they've just modified that yeah. same defensive mechanism, but given it a second chamber. And so they mix chemicals in their body right before the blast. Okay. And so, um, and, and when they mix it, when they create that exothermic reaction, the chemicals are in a heavily sclerotized hard chamber yeah. right near the exit pore. Okay. And so that's what. So that's it's the ha- chemical reaction that creates the heat. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Wow. Right, and that they so and they have good control over that, obviously, yeah. and it doesn't hurt the the insect, of course, right. to, to use that chemical defense
1: and you said that so all beetles actually have some form of this defense in their um, rear end all. <laughs>
0: all, no not all beetles, most beetles are in a suborder of coleoptera okay. um, that are that don't have these glands okay but there's another suborder called a Defaga okay. and they all do okay so yeah. what
1: are some examples of beetle other beetles that would have this type of defense besides bombardiers
0: um all ground beetles okay um quirly gig beetles okay dieticids uh-huh. um yeah hydrophilid no not hydrophilids. um oh <laughs> Okay. They're like a lot of, they're water beetles. And okay. then right, I'm trying to beetle. think of like a common ground beetle. There's, there are a lot of them. They're everywhere, but yeah. they're kind of, they're not uh, like scarabs, something that, that people the general know. exactly so the ones that we know well like a like a ladybug is that a form of mm. a beetle it is a form of a beetle but it doesn't
1: have that but it doesn't, it doesn't have, have that, that.
0: yeah and so th- most of the beetles that you know are probably in that other suborder okay polyphica.
1: they're not going to shoot chemicals out onto your hand if you pick them up
0: um probably not <laughs> not at the boiling point of water right. <laughs> right
1: i know i remember my son once we were we were at our cabin we went out hiking in the woods in the forest up near prescott and he found a beetle that was pretty big. It was maybe a couple inches. It was brown Uh and its legs had like all these little sticky sort of things sticking off of it like almost sharp little things Mm -hmm. and he was holding it and after he put it down he said gosh my hand stings a little bit and I said I I wonder if it emitted some sort of chemical onto your skin but it didn't shoot anything out. It was really strange and I couldn't figure out is this a defense mechanism? It was a very docile just slow-moving big Mm. brown beetle.
0: There are so So there are definitely other beetles that have chemical defense. Yeah. So uh, in, uh, like, blister beetles. Yeah. For instance. Okay. And what it sounds like to me in this situation is probably a tenebrionid and they do have some chemicals that they they don't shoot them out. They kind of ooze them out. Yeah. So...
1: I wanted to ask you about cockroaches, Okay, and I say it that way because most of us have this reaction when we see cockroaches, like, you know, my reaction when I see one is to kill it Mm -hmm. if it's in my house. I mean, I don't kill it outside, but if it's in my house, I'm like, no, you need to go. And um, so I wanted to ask you as an entomologist, I know you don't study cockroaches in particular, but is there anything redeeming about these guys? Is there a reason that we should look at them differently, or do you pretty much agree that they're just kind of gross? <laughs> well,
0: um, I I could put up a good plug-in for cockroaches. Really? Not the ones that are in our house. yeah, Not those. But actually, there are many, many, many species of cockroaches yeah. that are not pests. Yeah. And I think what it is is that we've been living with them for so long. Yeah. And they are... Um, they are not good for human health. Really. Right. So, so so our reaction to them is actually well-founded. It's, it's, it's well-founded. Yeah. yeah. And so uh, we don't want them in our house. We don't want them near our food. Yeah. You know, and um, I have the same reaction when I see one. I just, it really creeps me out. Yeah. And, but at the same time, I know that they're they are not going to hurt me. Right. You know, but it's something I think it's built into our DNA at this point. But you still, you don't want them crawling
1: around your counter in your no. kitchen because they do carry germs and yucky. I mean, a
0: lot of them are coming up from the pipes, right? Or from yeah. the sewers. Yeah. And they—they, yeah. they, they, I think, yeah, you don't want to... Be exposed to their frass, yeah, you know, and stuff. So,
1: but so what do what do they do? That like the ones that aren't the pests. Is there something that they do? That's I mean, I I feel like every insect I ever learn about, if I read about it or something, there's some function that they serve on the planet that's actually really important.
0: Mm. Whether it be
1: that they're helping to decompose plant matter or they're you know, I don't know what it is. Sometimes they're eating
0: other insects that are even worse. Well, they cockroaches don't eat other insects but they are decomposers. Okay. And so that is that is a good good thing. Actually termites are cockroaches. They Most are. people don't know that. But oh, no. they're just social cockroaches. Oh. And so if you think about termites, I mean we think about them kind of like oh no, not a termite especially associated with our house yes. and structures, but they are incredibly important decomposers in the wild. Right. And uh and cockroaches are um, termites are just social cockroaches and they're t- but they're small too I mean that might be part of the
1: thing with a cockroach is it can be so big
0: <laughs> can be and they can be really colorful and magnificent well they yeah and the tr- n- not the ones in our house okay but they can be like really really gorgeous
1: yeah yeah and it's true I, I have to say that so my oldest son who's about 13 now when he was little he was fascinated with bugs and I thought oh no because, you know, you want to foster that. You talked about curiosity <laughs> yes. um, earlier in the pod. And I to me, that's one of the central themes of this pod is this finding your curiosity, whatever it is. For mm-hmm. you, it was looking under that microscope and going, what is going on with these bugs? And, and it brought out something in you that made you want to keep doing it. Yep. And I feel like a lot of times we are afraid to follow that curiosity because it might be something that we never thought of as being a career path mm-hmm. or a passion
0: mm-hmm. right but isn't that fun
1: but it's so fun <laughs> and you want to spend your life doing what's fun exactly and yeah. so when my son got really into bugs i thought oh gosh you know i'm going to have to allow him to sort of explore bugs and to you know so we would watch movies about bugs and we'd go to the insect festival which just happened this past weekend it happens every year mm-hmm. um it was the first place he held a tarantula he held a madagascar hissing cockroach oh, you know all those things he ate yes. the you know how they saute up the mealworms mm-hmm. and they put it on a chip with salsa he <laughs> ate that you know i couldn't bring myself to do that but i started to learn through his fascination I started to get a little fascinated and want to know more about the bugs. And I would watch these videos, um, that movie Microcosmos. I don't know if you've ever seen it. Uh And I would be like, these bugs are amazing. Wow. I'm so
0: happy to hear you say that because that's one of my dreams with the insect festival. Yes. A lot of people focus on the children. And I really (laughs) love to see the children teach their adults. That's right. Yeah. Yes. My son would pick things
1: up, and he would hold them out to me. And my first instinct would be to back away yes. and go, ooh, ooh, don't put that near me. And then I would say, oh, oh what look. is that? Tell me about <laughs> it. And I started to see his curiosity, yes. and I wanted to know more. That's awesome. And I think it's a great message for us as parents, too. Like when your kids want to go down a path, if, even if it seems icky or gross or, oh, don't let them touch that – you gotta let them do it yeah. if it's not gonna hurt them. You know, right. you gotta let them do it because there's something there mm-hmm. that could spark this lifelong love of science yeah. or something, and even change your view and change <laughs> your view as a parent. That's right. Um, so I want to finish off by asking you about um, you talked about your um, how much you see uh, specimens in these history, natural history museums mm-hmm. as sort of undervalued and underappreciated. I read that about you. Yeah. <laughs> and you've talked about the system, systematics or uh, I don't know what you called it or how you said it, you know, looking at these different morphologies and finding differences in the insects. So um, I want you to talk a little bit about as the, um, as that part of your job, sort of curating the insect mm-hmm. collection, what is it that you see that's so valuable and maybe underutilized about these collections and maybe how they could be used or better used?
0: Sure. So, yeah. um, I have a little bit of trouble talking about this in some ways because I so deeply understand it and it so deeply makes sense to me that it's hard for me sometimes to meet people where they are. (laughs) Right. Bring (laughs) it down. Bring it down uh, a little. Yeah. (laughs) Not bring it down, but just across. Sure. (laughs) So um, they basically, well, especially when you're dealing with a mega diverse group like insects. Yes um and especially when you're dealing with very small organisms mm-hmm. if it the s- the size and the diversity is kind of mind-boggling until you've seen it it's hard to get that across to people sure. because in our world view we see things that are pretty big we see plants we see yeah. vertebrates we yeah. have like our world view isn't full of these tiny little insects right unless you're an entomologist right. <laughs> and you're out there looking for them right so I think most people don't appreciate just how diverse they are yeah. and how challenging, therefore, they are to find out who they are. Yeah. Because you need specific skills in order to identify any one lineage of insect. Okay, yeah. right? And so basically what an insect collection is, these natural history museums are reference libraries that people throughout history have worked on and impart they have imparted their knowledge into whatever section of that diversity they're an expert on. Sure. And that is there, attached to those specimens forever. Yeah. And so over time, especially with collections that are really well curated mm-hmm. and have a strong history mm-hmm. of a lot of people working on them, yeah. they're an irreplaceable resource. They're yeah. a reference library yeah. for whatever region in our case our our collection here it's mostly focused on the Sonoran Desert region okay and um and so it's the biggest one it's like the most important collection in the world for the Sonoran Desert region and where is that one located here is it something that people can see or is it oh, clear? yeah yeah where yep. is it it's located on the fourth floor of the Forbes building okay. which is right near the center of campus next to Old Main yeah um, it's one of the, I think it's the second or third oldest building on campus. Yeah. But um, we recently renovated the entire collection okay. with the help of a National Science Foundation grant Wonderful. and um, the College of Agriculture and Life Sciences. Mm-hmm. And so um, now this whole collection of 2 million specimens what? is all curated in about 440 square feet. Oh, my goodness. In a compactor system with okay. modern cabinets and drawers yes. and... Um, that's protected from our biggest foe <laughs> for insect collections, our Dermestid beetles. Oh, so they actually get in there and eat the specimens? They get in there and they <gasps> eat them. Oh, yeah. No. that's what they do. This is why we think of insects as pests, because they can get into anything, <laughs> right? There's an insect that does everything, <laughs> everything. including de- eating dead insects. Oh, my so, gosh. <laughs> so, um, But people can go if they want to and see this they collection. Can. Yeah, so we're open um, 8 to 4, uh-huh. Monday through Friday. Uh-huh. Um, and we give tours all the time to school groups and individuals families yeah And so, yeah, I encourage everyone to come and see what we're doing and see, you know, see this amazing resource that we have.
1: I know. I remember taking my kids when they were young to the International Wildlife Museum out um, west of town on Speedway. And my boys used to call it the Icky Bug Museum because the first room you walk into, I don't know if you've ever been there, but the first room you come into is one of these insect collections with drawers and cabinets. Mm -hmm. And um, my younger son was so bored, he would just run right through and go into the next room with the big vertebrates. He wanted to see the leopards and you know all those things Mm -hmm. and my older son who loved bugs could just spend an hour or two just pulling every drawer out and looking at all of these specimens and you don't realize how valuable that is like you know I would open a drawer oh it's another moth and they'll open oh there's another moth oh there's another moth but never really took the time to look at those intricate details
0: yep and it's all there filled with intricate details and and metadata, so um, little labels that yeah. for on each one that says where it was collected, when it was collected, yeah, and um, names. So like there are species names yeah. attached to them. Sure, that's the most important thing because really. that name attached connects a specimen that's unidentified. Um, to an identified specimen, mm-hmm. um, you can do that morphologically, and okay. then that will connect you to all the literature and everything that's known about it. So oh, you wow. know whether or not it's a pest to worry about or not. Yeah, you know, so you know whether do you need to spray chemicals <laughs> or not. Or yeah, this is like the action. physical
1: Google for insects.
0: It is. It's a <laughs> physical Google, it, right? And it's really irreplaceable. Right. I mean, it, it's like th- that physical object mm-hmm. is really essential because it has in it all of the intricacy, all of the information that people haven't even looked at yet. And you can't see on Google. You can't see that on a picture or a computer. Right, exactly. It's not just information we know, it's information we don't know. It's still there waiting to be found. Yes. So I have a question about that. Are
1: there students on campus who do research projects as undergraduates or grad students that are focused on collections like that?
0: Well, the, all of my students in my lab, being yeah. in insect systematics, sure. do. Okay. And then there's several other graduate students and undergraduates that yeah. work in the collection regularly and volunteer yeah. in the collection. So this is something
1: students could look into if oh. they were interested in yes. systematics or insects or just getting into a science project and sort of exploring that. And boy, would I love it. You would. Yes. So students could find you on your the website. Just look look up your name on yep. the U of A website, and they could contact you maybe if they're interested in getting involved in you some bet. way, Absolutely. I think that's uh, something that students might not even think about. Here is getting involved in a research project like that, where you yeah. don't necessarily have to go out in the field and collect bugs, right? But there are there are insects that you can look at with lots of information left to be found. Exactly,
0: and yeah. what I find is is that it's really satisfying for a lot of people to be. Part of something that's bigger yes. than them, than their, than themselves, or their even their life. You know, like right. a collection is forever, that's and so right. you're contributing to something that's going to be around forever. And um, it's kind of, I don't know, it's very satisfying. It's very. It, it things make sense there yeah what, what are <laughs> very some, organized what are
1: some of the insects that are sonoran desert specific that people might recognize there are there any that people oh. might go oh i know about that one from oh, living yeah. in the desert
0: like the palaverdi verde yes. that comes out in the monsoon season oh gosh very big yes sarambicid big brown thing they i love picking them up they have those big pinchers on the front right they have those mandibles mandibles yeah. so yeah. that's
1: part of their jaw yeah, mandible. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. and But you can – if I could teach anyone how to pick one of those up and not get hurt. Yes. And that's a very impressive thing to do for oh, parties. Yes.
1: Yeah, my son will pick them up
0: e- even if he does get hurt. Oh. He doesn't care. He'll see one <laughs> and right. say, oh. And he actually
1: just <laughs> said to me yesterday we were talking about it, He said, Mom, I don't remember seeing any Palo Verdes this season. And I was like, they were out because I remember getting a couple dead ones out of our pool. That's interesting. So yeah. I do. I got a couple too, but very few. Very m- few this year. Much less. Okay, so that's interesting. That could yeah. be a project.
0: <laughs> Why be. were there fewer this year? Could be. Any exactly. others that come to mind? Like oh, um, a lot of them do. I don't know what's really obvious to other people. Well, the green, the um, cattiness. Yes those big beetles yes. with the green uh, the little racing stripes they are they can be really common yes but some of the amazing things to me are the things that you wouldn't actually know exist but that are all around us unless you knew where to look okay so this is what really got me into even doing all this crazy outreach like the Arizona Insect Festival and, and so forth is that I had a student who grew up going into all the sky islands with his father yeah his name's jason okay and he would bring these spectacular live specimens to me and put them in my hand okay and so so for example dynasties Granti. okay this hercules beetle okay Okay. that's a big scarab with this these amazing this amazing structure and um oh my gosh vinegar runes and all these Things and I was like, oh my gosh, the world has got to see this. Yeah. So the the other one that's really spectacular, it's on the cover of the Beetle Peterson Guide. Okay. And it's a local, <laughs> it's a local species called um, Chrysina gloriosa. Okay. And it's just, it's green. It's got. Um, gold racing stripes down it it's oh just a sort of iridescent thing it's just yeah. magical but not people wouldn't know that necessarily. you wouldn't necessarily know and it's right in madera canyon but what? to find them you go in the monsoon season you set up a black light and then they come to you what yeah they're attracted to you see by tip. the light that's a hot tip for it's anyone who's
1: interested t- in <laughs> looking at beetles <laughs> that is amazing well, maybe that's a great place to end with okay. a hot tip for people to go out and look <laughs> at these amazing bugs in the Sonoran Desert yes. um, and to get in touch with you if they're interested. Students here on campus who want to get involved with insect research on systematics, you're a great person to get in touch with. You welcome that. Um, absolutely. And I encourage everyone who's listening to not be as afraid of bugs as we were before we started and to understand and realize the beauty of these creatures and what they bring, oh, um, and science in general—that this is how this is how it starts. You find your curiosity and you follow it. That's right. Yeah. So I can't thank you enough for being oh, here. Thanks so
0: much for inviting me.
1: Yeah, I've really enjoyed our conversation. It's great to talk to you. You too. Thanks, Wendy. You're welcome. Thank you. Lucky Ladies Podcast is recorded in the studios of the Office of Digital Learning at the University of Arizona special thanks to the team for recording sound editing and photography you can catch all episodes of plucky ladies on soundcloud itunes and on my website JessCap.com. that's j-e-s-s-k-a-p-p.com and click the tab labeled the podcast send me a message with your plucky story and it might be featured on a future episode subscribe to plucky ladies podcast and come along on all of my journeys into female curiosity perseverance and feats of excellence